On the afternoon of May 2nd, 2012, paramedics were called to check on three occupants who had rented a room at the Travelodge Motel in Barrie, Ontario, Canada. Staff became alarmed after noticing that water was pouring out from under the door of room 129. When one of the employees of the Travelodge knocked on the door, he was shocked to be greeted by a man who was completely naked and covered in blood. Paramedics arrived minutes later to find a scene straight out of a horror movie. Join me now as we take a closer look into what brought together three complete strangers from different parts of Canada. A common interest that would later turn into a suicide pact, leaving first responders traumatized, family members of the victims completely horrified, and left looking for answers. Twenty-three-year-old Mark Dobson met thirty-two-year-old Mary Hepburn in early 2012 through a website called The Joy of Satan. Mark frequented the Joy of Satan website because he was looking for answers. Answers to the mental torment he claimed he'd been experiencing at the hands of alien beings. Spirits that had been urging him to harm himself. He sought out help on the website, asking for advice. He said he didn't know how to defend himself against the beings anymore. Eventually, another visitor on the website, named Mary Hepburn, reached out to him. She was a self-described Wiccan, and she felt compassion for Mark. After interacting for some time, the two became more than internet friends. In fact, they became so close that it didn't take long for Mark to move from British Columbia back to his hometown of Barrie, Ontario, where Mary was living. At the time, Barrie had a population of roughly 140,000 people and was growing quickly because of the affordable housing and its proximity to Toronto. Barrie is also commonly known as the Gateway to Cottage Country because of Highway 400, which is the second largest highway in the province, and it serves as the primary route from Toronto through Barrie to Southern Georgian Bay and the Muskokas. After Mark moved to Barrie, he and Mary continued to practice their hodgepodge of beliefs and rituals while continuing to visit the Joy of Satan website. On the website, the Joy of Satan Ministries claim they followed spiritual Satanism. But according to a magister of the Church of Satan, founded by Anton LaVey, the website doesn't actually represent Satanism at all, and those who frequent the site don't necessarily have a full grasp on the Church's doctrine. The magister we spoke to gave us some background on the Church of Satan, and also some insight into the website where Mark Dobson had met Mary Hepburn. I am a Satanist and I am a magister 
with the Church of Satan. The magister is sort of uh, like a rank above priest. You can think of it as like a bishop, that equivalent. The Church of Satan was formed in 1966 as to represent the first carnal religion, an anti-spiritual religion, and we choose Satan as mythology's most adversarial symbol and an apt mascot for the principles we uphold. Pride, lust, greed, atheism, critical thinking, science, rational self-interest, nonconformity, humor, and spiritual religions around the world have traditionally called these things evil, but we see them as life-enriching, so we take that evil stigma and adopt it proudly and defiantly. We're one of the few religions that says we're not for everybody. We take Satan strictly as a metaphor. We think Satan and all other deities are a product of the human imagination. We use Satan as an apt metaphor to represent the adversary because, you know, that's who we are philosophically. The adversary of the spiritual religions and collectivism and other things that a lot of spiritual religions have traditionally tried to encourage. So we're on the left-hand path, you could say, away from all of that. We're not reckless hedonists, but we are Epicureans. We do believe in materialistic indulgence and pleasures of the flesh and so on. We're not advocates of murder or anything like that. Animal slaughter or you know, sacrificing other humans or drinking blood and all this other nonsense. And you can look at our literature and see that we don't practice these things. Joy of Satan has absolutely no connection at all to the Church of Satan. Joy of Satan is really just one of these dime a dozen websites that show up, or they've even been going on before the World Wide Web, where somebody will claim to be forming their own organization, their own satanic organization, and use a name similar to ours. But again, it seems like they're basing a lot of their stuff off of not our literature, but a mishmash of other things. While continuing to visit the Joy of Satan website, Mark and Mary came into contact with 52-year-old Helen Dorrington from Cold Lake, Alberta, Canada. The three quickly became quite close and soon became a makeshift family to one another. Helen playing the role as a motherly figure to both Mark and Mary. But their relationship was about to take a very dark turn. The bond that had been formed through their common interest in the occult, Satanism, and extraterrestrials soon had them discussing ways for them all to be together, but in a spiritual sense. They were seriously considering making a suicide pact between the three of them. They actually believed that the pact was really a dedication of sorts which by performing a particular ritual, the three would be delivered to a purported alternative dark side galaxy planet. On May 1st, 2012, Helen flew to Toronto, Ontario from Cold Lake, Alberta. She had planned to meet up with Mark and Mary at the travel lodge in Barrie, where they would rent a room and carry out their bizarre plan. After convening at the hotel, the threesome decided to spend the day shopping and having fun before performing their ritual 
the following morning. They parked at the local mall, picked up some pills, had some dinner, and then headed back to their room, where they watched the 2011 horror romance movie Red Riding Hood. The plan was that Mary and Helen would take a handful of pills, and when they were out of it, Mark would strangle each of them and then kill himself at dawn, releasing the three of them to become other beings in another galaxy together. But things didn't go according to plan. On May 2nd, 2012, on a Wednesday afternoon, a Travelodge maintenance worker was notified that there was water coming from under the door of room 129. But when he knocked to gain entry into the room, there was no answer. As he continued to knock, there was still no answer. Suddenly, the door came open, and on the other side stood a naked and bloody Mark Dobson. The travel lodge employee had not been prepared to see the bloodbath he had walked into. Immediately, the maintenance worker called 911. Paramedics were the first to arrive on the scene. Former EMT Natalie Harris recalls stepping into the room. It was horrible. It was just so heinous. Couldn't process why in this lifetime anyone could do that to another human being. When we got to the call, we didn't know that he had actually murdered these women. We thought maybe it's an assault, maybe the assailant is somewhere else in the hotel. We didn't know. And then my patient started talking and we easily could put two and two together. I had to put an IV in his arm while he was being charged with two counts of homicide in the back of the ambulance. It was very confusing and it caused what's called a moral injury. I had seen very gruesome calls before, but they were all accidents. This is something that a person consciously chose to do and it was just so heinous. When Constable Andrew Butler arrived, he walked into the motel room to find an entire wall covered with a huge blood smear and described it as a horrific scene. There were two women laying deceased on the bed with neck wounds so deep that their heads had nearly been decapitated. Mark Dobson also had large gaping wounds on both his neck and arms. As the constable looked around, he found a carpet knife, rat poison, surgical elastics, and empty pill bottles. There were also children's toys scattered all over the room, and a baby doll near one of the victim's heads. When he asked Mark what had happened, Dobson replied, This was a cult thing. 
they were supposed to be asleep. After being taken to the hospital, he later chillingly recounted the gruesome story to police. They knew right away they were dealing with someone that was truly psychotic. He told them that they had been planning their ritual for a month and a half and that they had all agreed to it. It was a sort of homecoming where their souls would enter into another system or planet after leaving their bodies. Local crime reporter Rick Vanderlind remembers when he first heard about the double homicide and was assigned to the story. We're very small newsrooms, right? So really it is it was my job to keep an eye on what's going on with the police. So I would keep an eye if I seen something or a press release comes through, I sort of jump on it right away. I think in this case, somebody actually called the newsroom to say there was something something going on at this motel on Bayfield Street at Highway 400 here. It was a homicide, double homicide. But we had no inkling till we went into court, this whole element of uh, Satanism involved. It was, you know, startling, of course, for reporting on it, because you're actually, in that case, you're not really prepared for what is coming down the pipe. So it, it starts to unfold like a, a story, really, and in this case, a, a horror story, really. Mark told local police that the plan had been for the women to take pills, and after passing out, he would strangle them. But after several hours, they were both still alert. He said things hadn't gone to plan. It just didn't go the way it was supposed to. As Mark sat on his hospital bed, he was eerily calm and continued to describe what happened next. At that point, he waived his right to an attorney and also stated that he was ready for his punishment, whether that was prison or hanging. He just wanted to get it out. Mark said that the women had expressed second thoughts, but insisted they had previously agreed to go through with it. He said that as daybreak was creeping in, Mary was still awake and wouldn't stop talking, and that time was running out. He decided he couldn't wait any longer, so he started to strangle her. That's when she started to struggle and yell no. He told police he had no idea it would be so hard. It was then that he took out one of the X-Acto knives that they had purchased the day before and began cutting her neck. Mark said he didn't want to use the knife. He wanted it to be peaceful and painless for her. Mary continued to yell at him to stop, but he didn't. Once he killed Mary, he said he then went over to Helen, who was by that point sitting on the bed in a dazed state. He said he spoke to her like a child, telling her that she needed to go to sleep now. Mark said he became startled when she started to scream, so he quickly grabbed a pillow and shoved it over her face. 
that's when he used the X-Acto knife to cut her throat. When it came time for Mark to kill himself, he explained it wasn't easy. He said the pain was far more intense than he expected, and he wasn't prepared for it. As he attempted to kill himself with the X-Acto knife, he recalled feeling dizzy and even passed out twice. He continued to explain that it was very important that he die before dawn, and if he wasn't dead by sunup, that their souls would leave him behind. After stabbing himself in the neck and arms, he then staggered to the bathroom. He turned on the bathtub and got in it. It eventually overflowed onto the bathroom floor and into the hallway. Mark sat in the tub until he heard the first knock at the door. He had no idea how he was going to explain this situation. But, he told the police, I'm not going to lie about it. It's what it is. It takes a lot of strength to cut your neck and kill the people you love. But I did not succeed. He ended by saying, I still believe what I believe. When asked by a nurse at the hospital where he was from, Mark replied, The Orion Galaxy. They were waiting for us to do this, to take us to paradise. It was the first time we'd ever heard the Orion Galaxy referenced as an afterlife destination. The Orion constellation happens to be one of the most prominent star formations in the night sky. Named after the Greek demigod Orion in the 8th century BC, it's been revered by ancient cultures around the globe for thousands of years. According to Greek mythology, the stars connect to form what appears to be the head, shoulders, belt, and feet of a man. A giant huntsman whom Zeus placed among the stars as a constellation. In 2006, the Hubble Space Telescope captured never-before-seen images of the Orion Nebula, a massive star formation 1,500 light-years from Earth. The photo revealed more than 3,000 stars in various stages of life and gave researchers new insight into the formation of celestial objects and planetary systems. It is there, astronomers say, that stars are born. Next, we tried to find out if there are any kind of afterlife beings associated with the constellation. What we found out went as far back as the Egyptian civilization, who constructed the Great Pyramid of Giza. The Great Pyramid of Giza and its companion structures, located just outside of Cairo, Egypt, are unlike any other monuments in the world. And what's interesting to archaeologists and astronomers is that three of the pyramids appear to be profoundly connected with the constellation of Orion. Apparently, the ancient Egyptian civilization firmly believed that it was from Sirius, also known as the brightest star in the night sky, and Orion, that beings came to Earth 
in the form of humans. Was it this belief that Mark was referring to? Mark later told the detective, I knew I couldn't stop. I knew by daybreak it would be very hard to get there. All of his bizarre statements would later be used by his defense attorney to show the court just how mentally ill Mark was and why he couldn't be held criminally responsible for the savage murders he had just committed. During his recorded interview with police, Mark stated that he wanted to help them corroborate his story and effectively led the police to emails exchanged between the three about their suicide pact. This allowed police to obtain the proper warrants necessary to search the apartment he had shared with Mary. Police also eventually were able to seize Helen's computer and found numerous searches for satanic websites and chat groups. By 6 p.m. on May 2nd, police had sectioned off the motel and were collecting evidence. The following day, Mark Dobson was officially charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Constable Tony Dufour gave a statement that post-mortems were being conducted and that all the people involved knew each other, but wouldn't elaborate any further. Later that afternoon, the victims' names were released to the public, and the following day, the cause of death was released and determined to be sharp force neck trauma. Few other details were released to the public. On May 9th, covered in bandages, Mark Dobson sat in the prisoner's box at his first hearing. He was denied bond and was given a court-appointed attorney, Mitch Eisen, to represent him. The court then set another hearing date for May 30th. The judge also issued a publication ban on the case. A publication ban is similar to a gag order in the United States. It prevents anyone from talking about or reporting on the case. There was little to no information provided to the media from May 2012 to September 2013. When Mark had his pretrial or preliminary hearing, Mark's attorney, Mitch Eisen, immediately tried to plead his client was not guilty by reason of insanity. Though he had confessed, he truly believed he needed to kill Mary, Helen, and himself in order to reach their paradise. Eisen stated that Mark's father had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and that Dobson had suffered from hallucinations since he was a teenager, but was never officially diagnosed until he was arrested. At his preliminary hearing, Mark Dobson attempted to plead guilty to murder. Crime reporter Rick Vanderlind had been covering the entire case from the beginning and was at most of the court proceedings. He basically, uh, right off the bat, admitted to it and uh, told the judge, take me to prison. I've killed these two women. The judge didn't accept that. They went to a, to a trial process, but he 
basically admitted it right off the bat from day one that he killed them and uh, just put me in prison. Dobson was visibly upset and even attempted to plead guilty at another pretrial hearing that was again denied. Dobson would say that he believed the criminal justice system was corrupt and not efficient. Finally, Mark elected to have a trial, similar to the U.S. version of a bench trial, where only the judge of the crown would hear the evidence and witness testimony, and the judge of the crown alone would determine Mark Dobson's innocence or guilt and corresponding penalty. He was verbally clear. I mean, some of the things he said weren't because he did talk, you know, he continued to talk about uh, at the pretrial, throughout the trial, this whole thing about the women were supposed to go peacefully. This was all a plan to bring them to paradise on another planet. So he did reiterate that a few times. So uh, bizarre. Yes, bizarre. <laughs> would be the word, I guess. Dobson did make a point of saying that the Joy of Satan website does not advocate killings oneself to go to another planet. This is what the Magister from the Church of Satan had to say about it. They were clearly insane. Crazy people get their ideas not from us, not from Satanism, but usually just from weird misrepresentations of Satanism. It's quite clearly not Satanism, because you can go back and look at our literature and look at what we believe in, and before the Church of Satan, there was no actual religion calling itself Satanism before we existed. It's a, uh, simply erroneous to call something that is not related to us theologically in any way, really, as Satanism. During the murder trial, police and paramedics testified to the scene and their encounters with Mark. Former EMT Natalie Harris had already been struggling with the mental and emotional ramifications of being a first responder when she showed up to the bloody scene at the Travelodge Motel that day. That's what turned the world very dark for me, and I spiraled into a deep, deep depression, and my PTSD escalated for two years until I needed to testify at the trial in 2014. And I saw my patient again, and that's when I experienced dissociation for the first time. I was kind of outside of my body looking in. And then that night, I overdosed because I just couldn't take the emotions anymore. The scene was described as one of the most horrific scenes Barry Police had ever encountered. Gruesome and grisly pictures from the scene were shown at the trial, along with video surveillance showing Mary, Helen, and Mark all shopping together before the murders. A computer forensic investigator who examined Helen's computer told of the internet history, satanic websites, and online user groups, which Helen visited over a period of time. He also testified that all three were linked to messaging on the satanic user group. Mark's attorney presented a defense-appointed forensic psychiatrist named Dr. Gary Chimowitz, 
who testified that Mark suffered from schizophrenia, delusional ideas, and hallucinations at the time of the incident, and continues to suffer from them today. The doctor also testified that Mark didn't understand the killings were wrong. The defense then called another psychiatrist, Dr. Hunter Lorberg, who testified that Dobson was currently on suicide watch. And he also agreed that Dobson suffered from delusions and hallucinations. Dr. Lorberg stated that Mark reported being able to communicate telepathically with demons and his girlfriend Mary Hepburn, saying he believed he would eventually be reunited with her in the afterlife. The doctor said that Mark Dobson couldn't have just woken up one morning with those beliefs, that if it had been a psychotic disorder, he had been struggling with it for a long period of time. He further went on to say that it was in his opinion that Dobson had a chronic case of schizophrenia, and although he had been taking medication for a year leading up to his trial, he still showed symptoms. The defense team ultimately tried to show that Mark Dobson couldn't be held criminally responsible for the murders because he was suffering from chronic schizophrenia and psychosis, therefore could not understand that what he did was morally wrong. Crime reporter Rick Vanderlind explained how it might be possible for Mark to be held responsible despite being diagnosed with schizophrenia. I mean, the judge explains the intricacies of the law. I mean, in many cases, I agree with the law and the way it's interpreted. I know the general public usually doesn't, but covering courts for years and years, you kind of see that some of the sense in it. I mean, in this case, I mean, the way I understand it, basically, they have to not know what they are doing is against the law and that it's not morally wrong. So in this case, this was planned, right? He had planned this for months online. They were going to have a suicide pact. He was supposed to kill himself. Apparently, he tried to kill himself. He wasn't successful. And there's there's many statements that he knew he was setting out to kill them. And he did. You know, in that moment of when he did it, he knew he was doing it. Psychiatrist asked him if a police officer was standing in the room with you, would you still have done it? And he said, no, because then I would have, he would have thought it was murdered. I would go to jail. So there was a lot of comprehension of what he did. On January 15th, 2015, Justice J.A. Watt found Mark Dobson guilty on two counts of first-degree murder, which carried an automatic life sentence without the chance of parole for 25 years. The judge would go on to say that there was nothing that supported the notion that Mark Dobson didn't understand that he was cutting the throats of Mary Hepburn and Helen Dorrington. The judge agreed that Mark most likely did suffer from schizophrenia for many years, but that he did still believe he knew and understood that the murders were against the law and morally wrong. The judge stated that the existence of a mental disorder does not excuse anyone from criminal responsibility 
only in cases where it renders that person incapable of knowing the act was wrong. The judge continued on by saying that the evidence heard throughout the trial showed that Mark did understand the significance of his crimes. When he made admissions to paramedics, hospital staff, and even police detectives, he stated that Mark claiming that he was delusional and hallucinating during the murders were inconsistent and that sometimes Mark overstated his symptoms and then understated them at other times, depending on which suited him. He found Mark to be self-interested and ultimately, he understood that the killings were morally wrong in the eyes of society. While Dobson sat meekly in the prisoner's box, showing no emotion, the judge concluded the day by setting a sentence hearing for February 10, 2015. Afterwards, the Crown's attorney indicated that they would be asking for consecutive sentences, which means that each life sentence of 25 years would be served one after the other, effectively putting Mark Dobson in prison with no chance of parole for 50 years. On the date of Mark Dobson's sentencing, he spoke and told the judge and the court that he wasn't a psychopath who broke into a motel room and murdered two women. I'm not some Charles Manson or Paul Bernardo, he said. They truly believed they were going home and they were happy. He said that Helen and Mary wanted him to do it no matter what. He said he regretted what happened and felt sorry for what he'd done, but that nothing would have stopped what happened unless there was outside interference. But they had kept their plans very quiet. Finally, Dobson stated how Mary was his real, eternal lover and that Helen was like a second mother to both him and Mary. The judge didn't believe that there was evidence of Mark being an ongoing danger to society, since this wasn't just a random act against a stranger. He did believe that Mark didn't want the plan to turn violent, and only took those measures when the drugs hadn't taken effect on Mary and Helen. Because of this, the judge sentenced Mark Dobson to two life sentences in prison, but to be served concurrently. This would mean that Mark Dobson will be eligible for parole on May 2nd, 2037. Exactly 25 years after the crimes were committed. Outside the courtroom, Sonia Hepburn, Mary's mother stated that she was pleased with the judge's decision. As she cradled a small urn containing some of her daughter's ashes. She stated she could have 25 years of peace, knowing that Mark was in prison. She said that while 25 years was good, it would never bring back her daughter. She was my everything. She expressed her shock over Mary's darker interests. 
saying that she had no knowledge. This may be one of the very few cases we've covered where we were only able to recover a small amount of information on the people involved in the case. Without more details, it's unclear what was happening in the lives of Mary, Helen, and Mark to make it possible for them to bond over such an unbelievable plan. A plan that Mark had admittedly said they had kept a secret. Is it possible they had kept much more hidden from those who knew and loved them? One of the reasons we felt compelled to tell this story was because of a detail that often gets missed in recounting these tragic cases, and that is the impact violent crimes not only have on the families of the victims, but the first responders and those involved with investigating them. Natalie Harris, the former EMT we interviewed, eventually left her job as a paramedic. She told us more about how the effects of her job became too much. When I was an active paramedic, the things that I did to try to mitigate what I was feeling were poor coping mechanisms. So I started to drink a lot, and um, that led to um, me also abusing my prescription medications. I had no idea. I, I hid behind a wall of stigma. I didn't want anyone ever to think that there was something wrong with me because I also didn't want to believe that there was something wrong with myself. I didn't, it was such a slow progression of an illness. My family started seeing things first, started seeing I was very angry. I was irritable. I started having night terrors, um, started talking in my sleep, sleepwalking. And that was abnormal, but I still thought I'm okay. You know, just keep going another day, another day. And that would equal more drinking and more abusing my medications. And that led to a serious overdose. And that was the beginning of me being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress injury and being given the gift to go away to Homewood Health, which is the rehabilitation hospital in Guelph for PTSD and addiction. So I had poor coping mechanisms before I went away because we it was taboo to talk about your emotions at work. You just pull up your socks and go to the next call. And if you did a call with a child, it was assumed that you obviously were not feeling well after it, but it was that, that's all. You would just still have to go to the next call. There wasn't you know, any counseling or any uh, peer support provided or time off or anything. You just did the next call. So it was so unhealthy because your emotions would just be stuffed down and without releasing them in a healthy way, they would bubble over. And that's what happened to me. And they bubbled over into addiction. So it was only about a year after I was off the road and Post-traumatic stress disorder or post-traumatic stress injury, whichever you'd like to call it, is so complex and the recovery is very different for every person. So it's not a quick fix and a year isn't very long in the scheme of the trauma, the amount of trauma that you're trying to process that you've had stored away in your mind and in your heart for years. So... 
I thought I was better, but um, my symptoms, my reaction to triggers that were in my workplace, so the radio sounds, just even going to a call, they weren't even high acuity calls, but just putting my uniform on became too difficult for me. Brought back too many memories and it started me to crave alcohol again and I relapsed. That was a very big warning sign for me that I couldn't be a paramedic anymore because my health needed to be number one. Although Natalie had to walk away from her 11-year career as an advanced care paramedic, that didn't prevent her from continuing to help people in her community and across Canada. She soon became a mental health advocate and founded Wings of Change a peer support group for emergency first responders. After authoring a book called Save My Life School, she began to travel across the country, sharing her story and spreading messages of resilience and hope. She also hosts her own podcast called Brainstorm, where she talks about mental health and stories about recovery. Five years since Natalie's suicide attempt, and she's come a long way in recovery and healing. This past year, she was elected for Barry City Councilor, where she says her main focus will be on improving Barry's urgent mental health care system. Natalie's experience is a crucial reminder on how first responders make personal sacrifices every day to serve our communities. The unwavering commitment made by countless men and women who willingly put themselves in harm's way in order to keep our neighborhoods safe. There are not enough words to adequately express our gratitude for their compassion and selfless dedication. I would like to thank all the guests that helped put this episode together. If you'd like to learn more about them, we'll have more information in our show notes. And now I'd like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Selena O. Tashina H. Our pal Shane from Out of the Shadows podcast. Victoria F. Echo W. Dominic H. Anna W. Keely W. Jennifer S. And Kara O. And now I'd like to introduce the following two podcasts, Murderous Miners. The simple truth is that children kill. 
Kids have murdered their best friends, teachers, grandmas, and even their own babies. Children have killed alone and in groups, with other kids and sometimes with adults too. Who can even begin to speculate as to how people can justify resorting to murder? Not us. This show focuses on the facts, details, and circumstances which give rise to murderous minors, killer kids. And the Haunted Ride. Hi, I'm Melissa Cummins from The Haunted Ride, a paranormal podcast dedicated to you and your experiences. I know what it's like to have something happen to you that's unexplainable, and how it feels to want to tell someone but you're concerned they may think you're crazy. Whether it's a disembodied voice, an apparition, or something you just can't explain, this is your place to share it. So come tune in with me every week while we discuss anything and everything that falls into our paranormal and supernatural world. Because ghosts are out there, and if you're not careful, they will get you. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash g E. But it's pen of mine. I can feel the madness. Someone's standing at my door. I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run. I can feel the madness. Someone's standing at my door. I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run.